Hey, today we're beginning a brand new series of messages called Hope for the Holidays. And, and you know, you can't just jump into the middle of a story. You can't crack open a novel and, and in the middle of it and just start reading there and make sense of anything that's happening, can you? I mean, there will be conversations that don't make any sense to you. People will choose to do things uh, that you won't understand why they're doing it. It will confuse you. You just can't open a book and start reading in the middle. You, you can't walk into the middle of a movie and make any sense of, of what's happening. Some of you have tried to do that, but it just doesn't work. You can't jump into the middle of a conversation and actually say things that are appropriate without knowing where that conversation has already been. You, you just can't begin in the middle of a story. And, and if you begin the Christmas season with the baby in the manger, then you're not starting at the beginning of the, of the story. You're actually you're jumping in at the middle of the story. And there will be a lot of things that don't make any sense to you. I mean, you won't understand why, why the celebratory song of the angels, why, why the fearful anticipation of the shepherds, why the political panic of Herod, why, why all of these things. You really you have to begin in the roots of the story. And so that's what I want to do over the next few weeks is I want us to, to kind of progress through the story of Christmas. But we're going to start at the beginning. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about the need and we're going to talk about the promise. And we're going to talk about the announcement. And then we're going to talk about the plan. And so that's the next four weeks. And, and we're just going to work our way through the Christmas story. But I'm going to tell you, we're not starting in Luke chapter 2 today, okay? If we start at Luke chapter 2, we're starting in the middle of the story, not the beginning. And so I want to make this comment to you this morning, and I want you to think about this. This is kind of the big idea of the message today. And it's this, is that the story of the baby in the manger is actually rooted in the grief of the heart of God. The story of the baby in the manger is rooted in grief in the heart of God. And if you don't understand the grief that's in the heart of God, then you won't understand the glory of the story of a baby in a manger. If you got your Bibles, turn over to Genesis chapter 6. Normally I'd say they're going to be on the screen, but, you know, hey, technology, it's a great thing, right? Chap Genesis chapter 6. And we're going to read verses 5 through 8. Here's what it says. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, and I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Look at verse 6 particularly. It says, And the Lord was sorry that he made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Consider just for a moment the, the deeply personal nature of these words. The Lord was grieved. The Lord was sorry. What is it that would bring such, such grief to the, hearts, to the heart of God? I mean, these words, they indicate something personal, some, some kind of personal offense, some kind of personal affront, some kind of, of personal of, uh, betrayal. What, what could be so personal that, that could be so significant that it would literally bring grief to the heart of God, that it would bring tears to the heart of God? What could be so significant that would cause this? Well, look at verse 5. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Could, could you get more graphic? Could you get more specific, more all-inclusive words than, than are what are here? I mean, God saw that the wickedness of man was great. 
over all of the inhabited earth. The, the people were, were constantly, they were doing evil things in the sight of God. And, and every intention of their, of their heart and of their mind was only evil continually. What, what powerful and graphic words there are written here. Could there, could there be a sadder passage really in all of Scripture? But I want you to think about this. That we really don't understand the great horror of these words. We don't understand the, their, their tragedy. You don't understand the sad, the sad thing that would bring such grief to the heart of God if you don't first understand that these words are relational. These are relational words. These are, these are words that are, are describing something that's deeply personal. It's, and if you don't understand the, the deeply personal nature of this, then, then we don't understand how, how sad and how, how tra- traumatic this, this passage is. And if we don't understand that, then we really won't understand the glory of God sending a baby to be born in Bethlehem. Think about it this way. Human beings were hardwired to to love. We we were hardwired to love God. Uh, That love of God, that Godward way of living, that God consciousness, that was to be the thing that would shape every thought, every motive, every choice, every action, every every word. And and it was to be done so fundamentally that that you could ask me in any situation what I was doing, and I I could give the answer, God. You could ask me for why, why I was doing whatever it was that I was doing, and because of the way that we have been created, I could, I could give the answer because of God. I would recognize His existence. I, would, I could recognize His authority. I would recognize His grandeur. And as an act of deeply personal love, I would choose to serve Him with all of my time and all of my energy. That's what we were created to do. We, we were made for God. We were made to love God. I'm not describing something spiritual here. This is what all human beings were made to do. This was the call of humanity. Love God. All of us here in this room are lovers. Now, I get that sounds kind of funny, but you were wired to love. You were wired to love everything you would ever do in your life, whatever it was, you were driven and motivated by love. And that love was to motivate us to God. It was Godward love. That's how we were meant to live. You see, it's so important to understand that obedience is not some kind of of technical submission to, to some abstract rules. That, that's not what obedience is at all. Obedience is rooted in the love of God. And because I love God, the, the lawgiver, I find joy in staying inside of his boundaries. I find, I find joy in what he calls me to do. I find joy in, in serving him. I find joy in pointing to his glory because, of, of, because I love him. And you know, that's really that's true in any relationship. I mean, when you love someone, you want to serve them. Your desire is to please them. You, you find joy in their joy. And, and ev- that's how every human being who was ever given life and breath was meant to live. That was the plan. And yet it's very clear in this passage in Genesis 6-5 that something has happened. Because there, there must be some other love that has claimed the hearts of human beings. Because no longer do they delight to serve God. No longer do they find joy in His joy. No longer do they want to stay inside of His boundaries. But they willingly and purposefully and intentionally, continually do what is evil in His eyes. How could it be any worse than that? Think, think of Jesus' summary of the law when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? We talked about this last week. He summarized it and, he, and he, he begins it this way. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And then you should love your neighbor as yourself. What, what's the greatest command? The, the greatest command of all commands, the, the root command, what is it? Love God. Right? Love God. That, that's, that's the love. That's the greatest command. And that love, it initiates all the other commands. L- listen, if love for God is the ultimate command, if, if love for God is the ultimate command, then the greatest evil of evils, 
is a failure to love God. It's a failure to love God because when I don't love God, I won't stay inside of His boundaries. I, I won't live for His glory. So we need to understand this, that, that human beings no longer love God as they should. It, it doesn't mean that they don't love, right? It doesn't mean that they don't love because you will always love. You were hardwired. You were created to love. So if you're not loving God, then, then you will love somebody or something else. No one in this room is loveless. That's why I said a minute ago that, that we're all lovers. And God owns your love at the deepest, most profound love. And if he doesn't, somebody or something else does. And so when you're reading here in Genesis 6 about this evil and this wickedness that has brought grief to, to the heart of God, you should ask this question. What love is so seductive? What love is so powerful? What love is so deceptive that, it, that it's possible in sin to replace the love that, was meant to, that I was meant to have for God? That's an important question. What, what could possibly take the place of God? The Apostle Paul, as he's making just a brief comment on the reason for the, for the coming of Christ, the incarnation of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5, he says this. He said, hear these words, Jesus came. That baby was born so that those who, would live, who live would no longer live for themselves. You see, the thing that always replaces love for God, the thing that always leads to this endless catalog of evil, is the love of self. It's the love of self. Somehow, some way, we insert ourselves into the center of the world. Somehow, some way, we ascend ourselves to, to His throne. And, and we don't find delight anymore in serving Him. We're obsessed with our will and our way. We, we want to be sovereign over our own lives. We want to set our own rules. We are obsessed with our own comfort and our own pleasures and our own happiness. I mean, think about this. You, you see this all the time. What's the mantra of today's world? Do whatever makes you happy. Right? That's the mantra of the world, but, but how many times does doing whatever makes you happy lead to sinful living? More often than not, right? When you live for yourself, you will step over God's boundaries again and again and again and again because your heart isn't motivated for love for Him. And it doesn't take a whole lot. Just, just look around. Just look around at our culture. Look around at the world. You, you will see massive empirical evidence of this dominating, controlling, enslaving, life-shaping self-love. I mean, what is it that makes marriage so hard? It's selfishness, right? It's, it's self-love. I mean, I marry you because I love you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. And, and why is it then that I find it so hard to serve, so hard to let a discussion go without it becoming an argument, so hard to not say, I told you so, so hard to... to, to be concerned with, with your needs. You know, I, I feed myself, but I'm, I'm not really worried about feeding you. Why is it? It's because of this thing of, of self-love that so quickly replaces love for God. What is it that makes parenting so hard? I mean, you've given birth, think about this, you've given birth to self-sovereigns, right? They, they want to write their own law. They want to set their own rules. Um, I'm at that stage of, of parenting now, because of the age of my boys are, that I am the dumbest human being that has ever lived, right? Anybody, any parent ever been there? Um, I, remember, I remember when I was their age thinking my dad was the dumbest man that had ever lived. And then a few years later, I got married and I thought, man, what school did he go to? Because, man, he got a lot smarter. And, and I'm just hoping that I'll go to that same school. But, but right now, I'm, I'm at that point in my, in, in my life. But I'm telling you, even before that point, I've never had one of my children say to me, Dad, if you could just give me some more rules. Dad, if you could just exercise more authority in my life, I would feel more secure. Not once, ever, have they ever said that to me. You know, a friend of mine told me a story about him going on vacation with his family. And, 
and he's a preacher, and he said, if you want to experience the depravity of selfishness, of, of sin, go on a long family road trip. He said, because not only will you experience yours, but you'll also experience your children's. Anyway, he told this story. He said his son Ethan, not, not Bobby's son, but his different, different uh, preacher friend with a son named Ethan. He said his son Ethan had some polyps in his nose, and it was making it... Uh, kind of difficult for him to breathe and he would wheeze when he was when he was breathing and it was a bit distracting and probably a little bit annoying and he's sitting in the back seat next to his older sister and she somewhere along the trip says hey dad Ethan is bothering me and dad says all right well what's he doing and sister says well he's breathing (laughs) and so dad says well what do you want me to do about it and she said tell him to stop just stop breathing. If he, if he could just stop that, my life would be so much better. Now, we, we, we laugh about that, right? But think about this. Every act of murder, every act of violence, every act of, of greed is all rooted in self-love. Every, every kind of gossip is rooted in self-love. Every bit of disobedience to parents is rooted in self-love. Every bit of adultery is rooted in self-love. The evil of the world has happened because we no longer love God as we should, and instead we love ourselves. And it's a tragedy. And it's a horror because the world was designed to have at its center a love of God. And when that's not there, when that's not there, things don't work like they're supposed to. Things explode into evil and chaos, and we experience that every day. Again, just watch the news. But what, what a tragedy. I mean, this week we saw in Michigan. What, what a tragedy. You know what's at the root of that? Love for self, not a love for God. But listen, listen, and you know this. You know that God loves the creatures that he made by, by this fact, the fact that, he, that his heart is broken because, because of this, because of our, our turning away from him. His heart is broken by that. And you, and you know that's true because if you love someone and they turn their back on you, they betray you, and they set their love on someone else, if your heart isn't broken by that, then there's probably not any love in you. You are, you are heartbroken when, when somebody turns their back on you. And God proves in this that he's not just sovereign, that he's not just the creator, that he's not just almighty, but he is a God of marvelous love as he weeps at the betrayal of of human life. As he weeps at, at what human life was supposed to be because in its fundamental form, this was supposed to be a beautiful relationship between God and man, a beautiful love relationship between God and mankind. And so how sad when you read this passage of Scripture and when you read this passage of Scripture, you, you really ought to let your mind's eyes go to see the tears in the eyes of God. Let the imagination of your ears hear the weeping of God, of the voice of God. God is grieved. Because not only has this love been taken from Him, this love has been stolen from us as well. It's the ultimate of human betrayals. But if you get this far in the passage of Scripture, if you, if you get this far in, in this passage, you've got to ask yourself this question. Well, what's God going to do about this? What, what, what could God possibly do about this? How's God going to respond to this ultimate betrayal? Because you see, God understands this. You see, every sin is vertical. Every sin that we have ever committed is vertical. You have never once committed a sin that was just purely horizontal. You've never once committed a sin that was purely against somebody else. Every sin that you've ever committed is against God. It's a, it's, every sin is forgetting him. Every sin is refusing to love him. Every sin is a rejection of his presence and his glory and his authority. Every sin is vertical. That's why David, when he confesses his sin of murder and adultery, he says, and he says in the Psalms, he says, Against you and only you have I done this thing. 
Speaking to God. What David is saying, he's saying, listen, my failure isn't first that I didn't love Bathsheba and Uriah as I should. My, my failure was that I didn't love you, God, as I should have. And when I didn't love you as I should have, I was able to do these terrible, terrible things. This is against you, God. So how would you respond in the face of such a betrayal? Well, that's where we get to verses 7 and 8. Look, look at what God says here. It says, The Lord God said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Man, verse 7, you know, if uh, this was a movie and this was kind of the end of the movie, this would be a sad and horrible end of the story, wouldn't it? You ever watch a movie and you get to the end and it's, it's a movie like you've invested a lot of time and energy, maybe an hour and a half, two hours into the movie and it ends and you're so disappointed with the ending. What do you always say? You say, well, that's an hour and a half I'll never get back, right? Like there, there's just that disappointment about that. that that's what this verse kind of sounds like, isn't it? That God, not in an act of ugly vengeance, but God in holy, righteous justice says, you know what, enough. I'm over it. I, I, I made you, I owned you, I provided every good thing that you could have ever wanted. A life of, of beauty that you could have never made for yourself, and this is what you do. Okay, I'm over it. I'm done with it. And God would have every right to do that, wouldn't he? And, and because he's the creator, he's the one that made it. And he's not doing this in unrighteous anger. It's holy and righteous justice that would end up sending the waters of the flood to wipe the earth clean, that, that would destroy the world. It would seem like this is the end of the story. And if this were the end of the story and we were watching this as a movie, we would say, no, 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 because love stories don't end that way, right? Ro romantic movies, they don't end that way. Romantic movies, love stories, they always end with the guy getting the girl, right? They never end with the guy just walking away and going, you know what? She played too hard to get, all right, I'm over it. I'm leaving. They never end that way, right? If they did, we, we would say that's a terrible movie. That's a terrible way to end. And this story doesn't end that way either. Because Genesis 6 has a verse 8. And it says this. It says, but Noah. I mean, those are two profound words. But it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. By an act of sovereign grace, God has placed his favor on Noah's family. And, and you know the story. Noah and the ark, they were chosen by God's grace to survive the, the floodwaters. And they had some animals on the ark with them. But it's important to note what happens after the flood. When, when the waters recede and, and, and the water goes down and, and the earth dries. Because God makes a covenant with Noah. And God says this. He says, Noah, I'm going to bless you. And not only bless you, but I'm going to bless your descendants. And then if you were to read in the next couple of chapters of Genesis, the genealogy that follows, you'll read a lot of names, and most of them are names that we probably have really never paid a whole lot of attention to. But you're going to come across one name that will be a very familiar name, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time. It's the name of Abraham. Because Abraham was one of those descendants of Noah. And God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he says to Abraham, not only will your descendants be blessed, but through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Apostle Paul alerts us to the, to the fact that, that one of those descendants of Abraham is Jesus. You see, the only way for this horrible brokenness of this relationship to be rectified, to be restored, is for God to send His Son. That's the only way. Now look at Genesis 6 again. And I just want to explain to you why it says, The Lord saw that the, wicked, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And listen to what it says. It says, And every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Uh, listen to me on this. Our big problem is not first that we have a, a behavior problem. It's not. If, if our behavior was the only problem, we could probably reform and, and we could probably be better. We, we could, I think. 
But your problem, my problem, is deeper than that. Our problem is a heart problem. See, in the Bible, the heart is the center, uh, the, the control center of the human being. It's the directional center for the human being. The heart is your casual core. And whatever controls my heart will then control my words and it will control my behavior. And the one thing that I'm not able to do ever is to escape my own heart. And so I, I need to be rescued. My heart needs to be rescued. Someone needs to do that for me because I can't do it on my own. I can't escape my own heart. I can't do for myself. If I'm ever going to be one of those people that loves God in the way that God intended for us to love Him, then I need to be rescued. My heart needs to be rescued. And so God sends His Son, Jesus, to be exposed to all the harsh realities of life in a fallen world. To, to, to live in, in a world full of brokenness. And, and, and in the midst of all of that brokenness and all of that temptation, Jesus lives an utterly perfect life. That, that life flowed out of His love for God, His love for the Father, and he would say, hey, I came to do your will, Father. Whatever is your will, not my will, but your will. And in every thought and every desire and in every word and in every action, Jesus perfectly obeyed. Perfectly obeyed. He, he did what we were unable to do. And he died a satisfactory death. He took our sin upon himself and he paid the, the penalty of sin with his death. So that there would be hope for us. So that finally the love of self would be defeated. And it would be replaced by the love of God. So that someday that we would, we would stand before Him and every cell of our heart would be fully in love with Him. So that every word and every thought and every action would be pleasing in His sight. That's the hope of Christmas. That's the hope for the holidays. That's the hope of redemption. And this work, this work of the Messiah, it's an event and it's a process. By, by Jesus' work on the cross, he, he's, he's defeated sin. He, he's, the power of sin's been broken. He, he made a public spectacle uh, of the enemy. He, he embarrassed Satan by, by the cross. He, he triumphed over him. He, he, was, he was victorious. And, and because of that, we don't have to live under the slavery of sin any longer. But you know this. You know this is true in your life as well as mine. The presence of sin still remains. The presence of sin still remains. It's being progressively eradicated by, by God's grace, by His sanctifying grace. But listen, you know this. There are times when your thoughts and, and, and my thoughts, they are shaped by the love of God. But not always, right? There, there are times when, when what we desire flow out of a love for God. But not always. There, there are times that, that, that the words that we would speak are formed and, and the content of those words are formed by the love of God. But not always. There are times when you act in a way that you would not act if you didn't first love God. But not always, right? You have given empirical evidence this week that the war of love still goes on in your heart. And you've brought evil and chaos into the place where you live. Maybe that struggle was even this morning as you were preparing to come to worship. I know people sometimes will say, it's a good thing I was coming to church because by the time I got here, I needed it, right? It happens, right? As, as, as you're preparing to come to worship, there's an outbreak of self-love that creates anger and division and conflict. How ironic is that? And so everybody in this room, self-included, we still need to embrace the sad reality of this betrayal and the glorious celebration of the hope that is ours that's represented by a baby in a manger who has come on this mission of, of rescue and deliverance 
And because he came, there will be a day when there will be a company of people whose every cell of their heart will be controlled by the love of God and they will live inside of God's boundaries and they will live for his glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Right? And maybe this is a story familiar to you. Maybe you've placed your trust in Jesus, but you would say this morning, Adam, you're right. I I still see that war. I still see the the need for the grace of, of God to be in my life. There's still this ongoing struggle. I'm not where I want to be. I'm not there yet. Maybe you're here this morning and for the first time you have insight to say, you know, I don't think I've ever lived for anybody but myself. If, if that's you, I would plead with you this morning. Confess that to the Savior. Confess that to Jesus this morning. Seek His forgiveness. Seek His grace. Because there was a baby that was born in a manger for our hope, for the hope of of redemption for the hope of the world so that we wouldn't live this way forever. I mean, think about it. Think about it. I mean, how many of us would say that we're, we're, we're content with the way that the world is? We're content with the actions of our neighbors. That we're content with the actions uh, of people in our community. That we're even content with our own actions and our own thoughts and our own deeds. We don't have to live that way. And we're not going to always live that way because there was a baby that was born in a manger. And the reason he was born was so that we would not have to live that way. That moment of judgment of the flood, it wasn't the end of the story. Because this this God of glory and power uh, and sovereignty is also a God of grace. And he sent his son. His son Jesus to love, to by, by grace to return us to that capacity, to, to be able to love him in a way that we were designed to love him from the very beginning. From the very beginning we were designed to love God. And so if you don't love God, if he doesn't have the full affections of your heart, something else does. Something else does. My hope for us this, this Christmas season is that we will return our hearts to the affections of the Savior. Not just because a baby was born in a manger, but because a baby was born in a manger that grew up to be a man who would live a perfect life and die on a cross and then not just stay dead, right? But that he would return three days later conquering death. That's the hope of the holidays. That's the hope of Christmas. That's the hope of the world. Let me pray for us.